The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Gut Feeling, the increasing importance of GLP-1-based therapies for personalized obesity management. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash WBN 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Welcome to Gut Feeling, the increasing importance of GLP-1-based therapies for personalized obesity management. I am Donna Ryan, and I am joined tonight by Domenico Rubino, my colleague. Here's the introduction. We're going to start with Gut Feeling, advances in targeting the gut-brain access to treat obesity. So we all know that our office is being filled with patients with chronic diseases. And I've chosen to start with this from the CDC website. Six in 10 Americans, adults, have at least one chronic disease and four in 10 have two or more chronic diseases, including heart disease, cancer, chronic lung disease, stroke, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes, and chronic kidney disease. You know, obesity is the root cause and a driver of almost all of these conditions. And that's why an approach to obesity is important. We know that the etiology of obesity is complex and there are environmental, genetic, behavior, and physiologic components to this complex etiology. If we're gonna successfully treat obesity, we have to understand the pathophysiology of body weight regulation the biologic basis of obesity. I'd like to show you a 3D animation of the regulation of food intake that focuses on the role of GLP-1. The hypothalamus is the central coordinator of food intake. Neurons in the arcuate nucleus regulate energy expenditure and intake. Additional areas of the brain also influence food intake including those controlling reward, emotion, memory, attention, and cognition, and of these, cognitive decision-making has a smaller role. The gut-brain axis regulates hunger and satiety. Ghrelin is the hunger hormone. When food enters the stomach, it triggers the stretch receptors. As food moves into the intestine, incretins are released. Once food is absorbed, the pancreas releases amylin and insulin, signaling satiety. GLP-1 is released by the gut with food intake and also signals satiety. GLP-1 receptors are found in the vagus nerve terminals and throughout the brain. The brain senses energy stores through leptin. If fat mass is lost, leptin falls, signaling the brain to prevent starvation. Hunger increases, satiety decreases and the metabolic rate slows. This causes weight regain. When we lose weight in this weight-reduced state, there are alterations both in appetite regulation and in energy expenditure. On the appetite regulation slide, in this reduced weight state, there are re reductions in GLP-1, GIP, CCK, PYY, insulin, amylin, all of those gut peptides that are important in satiety. There are also increases in ghrelin, the hunger hormone, 
and we can measure these responses to test meals in the re reduced weight state. Furthermore, on the energy balance side of the equation, there are reductions in resting energy expenditure and increases in muscle efficiency. This is called metabolic adaptation or adaptive thermogenesis. And it's related, this, this phenomenon is related to reduction in leptin levels. There's individual variation in the amount of metabolic adaptation. Um, and um, metabolic adaptation persists and is a driver of weight regain. It's a cause that, that makes weight loss difficult, but it also drives weight regain. So both of these factors, the alterations in appetite, the alterations in energy expenditure are what's really makes weight loss and weight loss maintenance so very difficult. Our body has a natural settling point within the environment. We know when we do overfeeding experiments and produce weight gain experimentally, there are metabolic uh, signals to decrease appetite and to increase energy expenditure. So at the end of those overfeeding experiments, our weight goes back to its set point or settling point. When we lose weight, the opposite occurs. There are metabolic signals that increase the appetite drive and decrease energy expenditure so that there's this drive to regain weight after weight loss back to our settling point. So this is the problem that we face in helping our patients lose weight and keep it off so that they can get the health benefits of weight loss to address all of those chronic diseases that are filling our offices. The good news is that we don't need to get everybody to a so-called normal body weight or even a BMI of 25 or 30 to get a lot of health benefits. We start to see improvements in glycemia and reductions in triglycerides with as little as 3% weight loss. And then with weight loss in the range of five to 10%, we get improvements in all of our cardiovascular risk factors. And we start to clear the liver of fat. Patients also begin to feel better. There are measurable changes in quality of life. Patients have reductions in symptoms of urinary stress incontinence and improvement in sexual function at this five to 10% weight loss. But it takes 10% or more weight loss to improve the NASH activity scores on liver biopsy. And it takes that 10% or more weight loss to really have significant impacts on the symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea. And we believe it takes 15% or more weight loss to be associated with reduction in cardiovascular events, mortality, and remission of type two diabetes. So while some weight loss is good, more weight loss is better. And more weight loss is needed to impact some of our outcomes. So this is the, uh, the current approach that we have to achieving weight loss. Our most effective treatment are, are surgical. The Roux-en-Y gastric bypass and sleeve gastrectomy are associated with about 30% weight loss at two years and the most sustainable weight loss of all of our treatments. However, these procedures are invasive and are associated with some risk. On the other end of the spectrum, we have intensive lifestyle intervention, a very safe approach, but it produces on average about five to 7% weight loss. With our older medications, Orlistat, Naltrexone bupropion, Fentramine topiramate, and Loraglutide three milligrams, 
we could get on average about 5% additional weight loss. Recently, we have a new GLP-1 uh, analog or receptor agonist, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams. It's been released to the market in June and it's associated with 15 to 17% weight loss. So what we're seeing is through our understanding of the biology of appetite regulation, the development of new pharmacologic products to help us achieve more weight loss, to help our patients achieve those weight loss benefits, especially around chronic disease management. Now, I'd like to call on my colleague, Domenica Rubino, to, to give us a little recap. What did you take away from that, Domenica? Well, I think it's really important to appreciate, first of all, the complexity. Like I love that iceberg slide, because the truth is when you see an individual who has obesity, you don't know all the underneath. You don't know their genetics, you don't know the physiology, you don't know the context of what's going on. So I think that's actually really important. And I think really understanding these hormonal, you know, the hormonal interaction between the brain, getting all these different hormonal signals, signals from the gut, signals from the muscle, et cetera, that is all important for regulation of food intake. So it's not really about willpower. I think the other thing that you talked about was the absolute critical impact of obesity on various metabolic incomes or outcomes that we see in terms of osteoarthritis, in terms of all the different chronic diseases, we want to focus on weight loss to improve those comorbidities and improve the quality of life of our patients. I think the other sort of take home kind of point from this mini summary is um, it's hard, right? It's challenging. The physiology is really tough. It, your body doesn't think it's a great thing to lose weight and it's gonna try to drive regain whether it's driving appetite or it's lowering you know, uh, your ability to expend energy, it works very hard to get that weight back. And that's where we wanna focus on anti-obesity medications, right? Because now we increasingly have the tools that can target these pathways, right now especially affecting appetite to try to help people sustain that weight loss and help them lose weight loss. Great, thank you so much. I hope you'll keep going and bring us into our first practicum. Let me introduce you. Okay. Domenico Rubino is director of the Washington Center for Weight Management and Research in Arlington, Virginia. Please, Domenica, take it away. All right. Well, thanks. You've twisted my arm. Um, we're going to focus on pharmacotherapy, and then we will focus specifically, because we're talking about gut proteins today, on GLP-1s. And the goal is how do we improve outcomes for our patients? All right, so we're gonna start by kind of laying the sort of foundation here. We're gonna talk about a pretty typical patient, right? So she's a 26-year-old woman. She's employed at the Amazon Fulfillment Center. So she's on her feet all day, all right? Um, her BMI is 37, and she's already been diagnosed with prediabetes and dyslipidemia. And so this is actually very concerning to her because she has a strong family history. And she's tried to lose weight several times in the last year using smartphone apps, and she did a formal weight loss program. And then she managed each time to lose about five to seven pounds. But as what usually happens physiologically, she developed a lot of cravings, she hit a plateau, she got frustrated, and she thought it was kind of all her fault. Um, but she really wants to lose weight, so she comes to you. So we're going to talk a little bit about the background for this person. 
So first of all, in terms of prediabetes, it's just a nice quick review that the current criteria to define prediabetes is a fasting plasma glucose between 100 and 125, post-GTT, uh, 140 to 199, or an A1C, 5.7 to 6.4. Well, what do we know about treating people with prediabetes? You know, why do we care? It's just borderline, right? So when we take a look at it, I, I think the take-home of this picture, and what's really important is many individuals with prediabetes go on to develop type 2 diabetes. So we want to prevent that, first of all. And then I think we should understand the physiology. So gradually what's happening is an individual or their pancreas is not able to bring the post-meal glucose down within a normal range. And little by little, the body requires more and more insulin to do that until the beta cells in the pancreas get relatively exhausted and they develop type 2 diabetes. So I think it's important to understand it's a continuum, a spectrum. Also, this post-meal glucose, it's important to use that A1C because I have seen many patients in my clinic have a fasting blood sugar that was in that normal range. However, their A1C is in the pre-diabetic range reflecting these post-meal glucose. So it's just sort of a call out to recognize that when you're diagnosing. The other thing that's really important is just as a refresh for many people, and it kind of reiterates what Donna was saying, we don't need that much weight loss to prevent the progression from prediabetes to diabetes. And so you can see uh, results over on the left from the DPP that for every kilo lost, you decrease the risk by 16% of developing type 2 diabetes. So that's pretty impressive. And also, we really want to get about a 10% weight loss. And if you look over on the right, this is some uh, nice data over here, which shows you that if a subject has actually reached at one time normal glycemia, they have reduced their risk by 50% in six years to develop type 2 diabetes. So this is actually a pretty big deal. We can help a lot of people by just preventing the development of type 2 diabetes. Well, what else are we looking for? Well, guess what? <laughs> Pre-diabetes actually is already a disease state. It has its own morbidity, and there is certainly evidence to show there's both early microvascular and macrovascular disease in individuals with prediabetes. This is very important to understand. The process is already ongoing. There have been many trials demonstrating that if you can intervene with weight loss, and you can see there's various trials there, whether they're surgery, whether they're lifestyle interventions, whether there's some medication interventions, we can reduce microvascular disease and we can reduce macrovascular disease. So that's pretty critical thinking about our patient, right? She's only 26 years old. Additionally, now because we're going to start talking about anti-obesity medications, there have been four trials so far, and you can see here the Zendos trial using Orlistat, at four years, the risk had decreased by 45%. The scale liraglutide trial, three milligrams, the use of liraglutide for three years decreased the incidence of prediabetes by 79% from prediabetes, decreasing the risk of type 2 diabetes. And you can also see with fentramine topiramate, and some early data at one year with semaglutide, we're seeing the same thing. We're helping people achieve normal glycemia. So that is one of our goals, right? We really want to prevent Stacy, who's 26 years old, from developing type 2 diabetes. So how do we do this? Do we treat her glycemia? Do we treat her lipids? Or do we actually treat her weight? So let's talk about what if we take the treating the weight uh, way to do this. So there's been various recommendations for pharmacotherapy 
to use in conjunction with lifestyle interventions. Because what Donna showed you is that lifestyle alone, in your average person, we might be able to get three to 5%, and oftentimes that's with help. With the addition of pharmacotherapy, we can move toward that 10%, and I just showed you that 10% weight loss will really decrease the risk of her developing type two diabetes. So the recommendations here, you can do a complications approach. So if somebody has no obesity-related complications, then maybe you would consider it if lifestyle's not enough and if the BMI is greater than 30. But as you see complications, the recommendation now is to actually use anti-obesity therapy so we can move them to a lower weight and decrease not only current complications, but decrease and prevent other complications. Um, this is an example. This is an old study from Dr. Wadden. But it is an important one because this is the context that you need to be thinking about for your patient. When he did this study, and it was with subutramine, an old drug from a long time ago, however, medication alone resulted in about five kilos of weight loss. Lifestyle, intensive lifestyle modification resulted in 6.7 kilos of weight loss, but the combination resulted in added weight loss, 12.1 kilos. So with each of your patients, you need to be thinking how do I help them treat their lifestyle as well as aid that physiologic regulation with medicine? And when the two things come together, that is when it's most powerful to improve their quality of life. So let's talk about sort of the general approaches. Just a, this is a mini recap. <laughs> um, we can't be complacent about prediabetes. We can't tell people they're borderline, okay? Because that implies there's nothing going on. The truth is there's active disease and our goal is to achieve normal glycemia. I think the focus really has to be, how do we help them lose weight? How do we help them with this management? Because we know that if we can get 10% weight loss or more, we're gonna decrease that risk. And we're gonna talk about some medicines. Now there's hope, right? We have new anti-obesity medications and a new approach that will allow us to get even greater weight loss. We need to address dyslipidemia, blood pressure, other comorbidities, and in particular, the focus should be on decreasing inflammation. And both Donna and I are going to hit on that. It's really important to understand that the state of obesity is an inflammatory state and the inflammation wreaks havoc throughout the body. And then we're going to talk about pharmacotherapy now and how it targets the physiology and it really helps people take action. So this is a list of the various pharmacotherapies that have been approved by the FDA for long-term obesity management. The first is Oralistat, which has been around for a long time, and it has very different mechanism than the rest, all right? It's an inhibitor of fat, effectively. And so we get rid of lipids, we don't have those calories from the lipids, and we'll talk a little bit about potential side effects with that. The rest of them are all centrally directed, all right? Because of what Donna was saying, the brain is the center of all of this action, of deciding where our weight is, what's going on, all that info, and so now what we're doing with these medications is we're targeting appetite with fentramine and topiramate. We're targeting GABA, GABA receptor modulation, norepinephrine. We're, we're targeting those regions of appetite regulation with naltrexone, bupropion. We're, we're trying to impact the dopamine opioid, the, the wanting, liking, reward aspects of appetite regulation. And with liraglutide and semaglutide now with GLP-1 agonists, we're actually affecting appetite regulation through different receptors in the brain, affecting hunger, 
et cetera. So we're going to talk about that a little bit. Um, fentramine alone has been approved for short-term use, although it probably is the medication that's used the longest for our patients. So we're going to do a little aside just to kind of refresh that historically anti-obesity medications have only been used in a relatively small population. We are now, with our greater understanding over the last 25 years of this complex physiology, we're starting to see some improved trends. And you can see those over on the right. Around 2012, we started seeing the utilization of these other medications. But the reason where they were these barriers is, first of all, and we're still not quite there yet, but it's the acceptance of obesity as a complex pathophysiologic state, a disease state. It's not just about weakness. It's not about willpower. And I'm hoping that among all of us healthcare professionals that we can get rid of the stigma. We can learn about the physiology and treat it. I think some of the older agents had more limited efficacy as Donna showed you. We used to be thrilled with an additional 5% weight loss, uh, but now the future looks much brighter with additional things. There has always been some concern about potential adverse uh, events in the past and some stigma with previous medications. But I think it's important to understand each of these medications is mechanistically different. They're not the same as the old drugs. So we're learning more about the physiology and that's what we're really targeting here. Our understanding has improved quite a bit. And then of course there's access, uh, economics, whether you have to do prior authorizations, kind of a pain for us healthcare professionals, whether insurance companies cover it, limited coverage, high tiers, co-pays, and you know, I think what's gonna happen, I think Donna and I are both very hopeful about this. Now that we have medications that are actually uh, giving us even more weight loss, that will convince the payers and the various people economically involved, including the patients, that we can get some traction here and help people improve their outcomes. So we're gonna switch gears a little bit and we're gonna start focusing on GLP-1. I think really this slide, it's a very busy slide. I think the key part is understanding that this is a hormone that has many different actions. And I think the key bits here is that it has impact on the brain, both peripherally signaling to the brain and within the brain. It is a neurotransmitter and it's communicating between all these different regions of the brain, impacting food intake, whether it's by hunger or whether it's by appetite or reward, etc. It has critical impacts as a gastrointestinal hormone on the stomach, decreasing emptying on the pancreas, improving insulin secretion and biosynthesis and regulating blood sugar, which is actually both of those things are very pertinent to Stacy, right? And also has some additional effects to decrease inflammation. And both of us are gonna to touch on that a little bit. Additionally, may have a cardioprotective effect, et cetera. I will let you at your leisure examine that diagram. So let's talk about the GLP-1s. So over on the left is the native hormone, all right? But the half-life is very quick, right? It's deactivated by DPP-4. We eat, it goes up, it comes down, we're done, we're satiated, and it's gone, right? But so our knowledge of physiology and the knowledge that we've learned from gastric bypass, we know that hormone is different from gastric bypass, right? So now we're targeting these gastrointestinal hormones. The more we know about them, we're using them to develop pharmacotherapy. So when we look at liraglutide, which is sort of the earlier kid sister, the half-life is 13 hours. So we've prolonged the effect of this hormone at the level of the brain, all right? And then we go on to semaglutide. And again, the same thing, the structure has been altered 
to hang around for a long time. In semaglutide, now the half-life is 165 hours, which allows us to do weekly administration. Another thing that's actually very important, and there's been a couple studies now, and there's actually some additional information in the rat model, is that when humans and animals have semaglutide 2.4, hunger and food consumption are reduced, they feel more satiated, and you can see that here, that there's less hunger over to the left, there's a greater sense of fullness and satiety, and also, well, what is this prospect of food consumption? It's those thoughts about, am I hungry? Am I going to eat? What am I going to eat later today? What am I going to do? Where's that food? And actually, that goes away, and or at least goes down. And I can tell you in my own patients, that's what I see. They say the thoughts, the obsessiveness, the just consciousness of food goes away, and they can kind of treat themselves more like, I need some fuel, I'm going to have some fuel. And this is a nice thing. So this is targeting many areas of the brain in its sort of totality of decreasing intake. And I think that's what's really important to be thinking about this particular medication. So now those first three medications on sort of the central acting medications list, um, you can see the various studies here. In the left, the y-axis is how much weight they've lost. You can see fentermine to pyramate in the blue bars. The average weight loss was 10.9 to 9.8%. The orange is all placebo. Now, some of these trials, when you see a higher level of placebo, like the core B mod for naltrexone, that's because they had an intensive lifestyle program. So that's why the placebo is a little higher and the difference between drug plus lifestyle is a little bit tighter. But what you can see with more intensive evaluation, you get nine, 10%. Liraglutide, you get 8%. But now I do wanna point out where it says scale maintenance in that middle bit. That's a maintenance trial. And actually that was an unusual trial because you had to lose 6% first and then you actually were allowed to be randomized to drug. So when we see 6.2, it actually is 12%, which was actually quite nice weight loss. So I wanna point that out. So again, it, it shows you that for some folks, they get good traction on lifestyle and behavior, and then you add the medicine and you get even greater weight loss. And so what about with the addition of semaglutide? Well, now we're cooking with gas, which is an old expression and reflects how old I am. However, these are starting to get to be really nice numbers, aren't they? because we're looking at clinical outcomes. We wanna help those folks with fatty liver disease, et cetera. So now we're getting 15, 17%. So now this is actually very exciting for us. When we look at anti-obesity pharmacotherapy, the different things that improve, waist circumference improves, blood pressure for the most part, except this is an important thing. When you have certain medications that can be potentially stimulatory toward blood pressure, you want to follow those patients closely. Our patient, Stacy does not have hypertension, but if she was a 56-year-old woman with hypertension, we would want to take that into consideration. In terms of heart rate, naltrexone can potentially increase heart rate. Um, it sort of says it's neutral here on fentramine, but sometimes fentramine can raise heart rate for some folks. Liraglutide and semaglutide do increase heart rate. However, that is thought to be a direct effect, um, that's thought to be a direct effect on the heart and the sinoatrial node and not thought to be actually negatively impacting. But it is one thing you have to watch with your folks. Cholesterol generally goes in the right direction as, as you would like. You can see that here. And what's important is in particular for Stacy is that with the GLP-1s, we see improvements in blood sugar. 
And that is something you want to take into consideration when you're working with your particular patient. If you can get sort of two birds, then that's what you want to do. You want to get weight loss and you want to decrease your blood sugar. And this is again is pretty much a summary of what we just talked about. We showed the slides with pre-diabetes improving. Um, we, some of the trials, you can see some improvement in sleep apnea, which they've examined like fentramine topiramate and liraglutide. Quality of life improves with all of them. Now, in terms very specifically about Stacy's case and pre-diabetes, you can see the SCALE trial where liraglutide 3.0 resulted after 56 weeks. This is after a year in lower blood sugars. And that's shown in the blue line compared to the um, at screening, what the blood sugars were, and then compared to placebo, which both of those groups had higher sugar. This particular slide is actually very nice, if you can understand it exactly, but the blue line and the gray lines as time progresses over 56 weeks is showing the number of people who develop the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And what you can see here is the blue line. There were a few folks right in the beginning, and then we don't see any increase in that group with liraglutide. In the gray bar, the placebo group, you see that gradual progression of prediabetes where 14 people actually developed type 2 diabetes compared to four that were treated with liraglutide. And over on the right in the bar graph, what you see is that people at baseline um, you're then looking, those who were normal glycemic at screening, 7% went on to develop prediabetes, right, Com on liraglutide compared to 21% with placebo. And those who had prediabetes in the beginning, at 56 weeks, only a third of those using liraglutide still had prediabetes, but 67% actually had prediabetes with placebo. So it is important that we are capturing GLP-1s have the potential to reduce the progression toward type 2 diabetes. And that's the important message here. So when we take a look at this, it's not just about weight loss, it's not just about blood sugar, but what we want to see is a decrease in inflammation. We want to see a decrease in visceral fat because we know that it's the inflammation that leads to a lot of these poor outcomes. So in this study that was recently published in Lancet, with liraglutide three milligrams compared to placebo over 40 weeks, what you see is a decrease in visceral fat in those red bars. So the majority of people who were treated with liraglutide, even those who might not have lost quite as much weight, they actually decreased in visceral fat. And this may actually be the reason for why we see some improved cardiovascular effects. This slide is just again to hit home that the combination of exercise and anti-obesity medication can lead to greater and durable weight reduction and fat mass reduction. And you can see that here both in the change in body weight and the change in body fat percentage. The orange line is liraglutide plus exercise. The blue line is liraglutide. The green line is exercise alone. And the gray is placebo. So exercise helps, no question. Liraglutide does something, especially over on the right, but the combination is very powerful to reduce fat mass. And this is just a sort of a overall sheet to look at dosing. And this is for you guys that you can download. And the one thing I would say about it from a clinical perspective, go slowly with your patients, adjust and do what is needed. And you can tolerate, they can, so they can tolerate side effects and you're always balancing side effects and efficacy. 
safety considerations for Stacy. So let's just talk about that. She's a young woman, right? So she's, you know, in contrast to who Donna's going to talk about, she doesn't have a ton of complications. She has some complications that can be managed now and kind of nipped in the bud. But when we're talking with her about what should she do, one has to remember with all Orlistat, you can get steatorrhea, you can get some GI complaints. She works on an assembly line in Amazon. It may not be so easy for her to go to the bathroom, right? She does have to remember to take multivitamins. She's young. Sometimes young people don't have to take many drugs and they don't want to take any medications. So that's something to consider. For the rest of them, the most important thing for a 26-year-old woman is to prevent pregnancy. Because when we see weight loss, we see women ovulate and women can get pregnant. So they have to be careful. And in particular, there, are, there is a REMS to obtain consistent pregnancy tests in a young woman for a topiramate fentermine. And because of potential teratogenicity, and this is an added factor that you have to talk to her about, and you have to make sure she's on birth control and that she's somebody who will be compliant with birth control. So let's talk about the treatment plan. This is a whole bunch of stuff, and this is always what I talk about with my patients, but very briefly, who is your patient? Is your therapy appropriate? What are the economics? I mean, that is the true <laughs> fundamental thing. Do they can they pay for it or will insurance pay for it? What are their comorbidities? You are always balancing their comorbidities. You want to optimize treatment, but you also want to look at what other medications they're on and could you make a comorbidity worse, for example, like hypertension, all right? You want to anticipate the AEs and the efficacy in a balance and talk with them about what adverse side effects they're willing to accept. You want to recognize individual variation in response and it may be trial and error. The one drug you try may not be the right drug for them. All right. You want to manage expectations, just like we've been talking about outcomes and why we're doing this and what is the amount of weight that they should lose. You need to have this conversation with your patients. You want to understand the context of who they are, what works for their lifestyle, etc. And you also want to double check all the medicines they're on and make sure there's no kind of interaction between them. So you engage in this dialogue. You ask, is this a good time for me to help you with your weight? You talk with your patient about the context of their life. You come up with realistic and practical goals for them, and you make a joint decision together, and you want to do your follow-ups and work on management. Please talk to your patients about individual variation, all right? Some people might lose 5%, some people might lose 50%. And this slide just shows there's a wide variety of response to any intervention, including surgery. We're just not showing that slide there. And the other thing that is really important here is have them understand that weight maintenance is critical. They have to stay on medication to keep the weight off. And the recent step four trial showed this. You can see in the orange line, when people came off therapy, weight was slowly regained. Those who continued therapy continued to lose. And you do have to explain to your patients that treatment is a chronic treatment, not just you go on, it's fixed, it's cured. And I want to thank Donna, take it away. Here's a quick takeaway that I have for your talk, Domenica. Um, good weight management is good chronic disease management. I mean, what we're doing here is not about cosmetics. It's about Stacy and her risk for developing type 2 diabetes. You really brought home the point that prediabetes is a serious condition. It's where microvascular disease and macrovascular disease become established. It's really not pre-anything. And the goal of 
of management of prediabetes is not just to prevent progression, it's also to try to achieve normal glycemia. Because if we can achieve normal glycemia, we can get them out of that prediabetes higher risk state. And to do that, we've got to get more weight loss. Your, uh, your synopsis of how to choose an anti-obesity medication was jam packed with great <laughs> advice. Yeah, it's about efficacy, it's about safety, it's about tolerability, but you really brought home the point that we need to be looking not just at weight loss, but at dual benefits, at other benefits that we might be getting uh, for, for our patients. And you so well brought home the point about engaging the patient in decision-making. This really was a masterclass. Thank you. Thanks, Donna. Yeah, it was fun. <laughs> now I wanna move on to our second practicum. And to do that, I wanna introduce you to Joseph. He's 52 years old. He had a stint placed four years ago, and he initially lost about 10% of his total body weight while he was in cardiac rehab. But since then, he's regained that weight and more. His current BMI is 42.3. He has abdominal obesity. His intern has referred him to a bariatric surgery uh, class, and he attended that session, but states he wasn't ready for surgery. It's too invasive, he said. Um, but his intern has also sent him to you because she's concerned about his blood pressure. It's increasing in recent months and she's unsure whether to recommend medications or refer to bariatric surgery. His other comorbidities include NAFLD, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, uh, which was diagnosed on MRI. His ALT 69 is a little high. His AST 40 is at the upper limits of normal. His ALP 149 is a little high. He has no fibrosis on his fibro scan, but that is indeed worrisome. His LDL is 60, he's on a statin. His triglycerides are higher than I like, 220. His blood pressure medications, well, he's on a calcium channel blocker, an ACE inhibitor and a beta blocker. So to sum him up, he has established cardiovascular disease, NAFLD, hypertension, dyslipidemia, and central obesity. So he's at 52 years old, that's young. He's got a high chronic disease burden. What do we know about this constellation of findings that he presents? Well, I really like uh, Steve O'Reilly's um, lecture when he got the Banning Award from the ADA about the, where he used the, the metaphor of the soggy bathroom carpet model of excess abnormal body fat. Let me just walk you through this. I think it's so clever. He used the bathtub as a metaphor for our healthy, normal body uh, fat stores, primarily in subcutaneous tissues and hopefully around the hips and thighs. Um, but when we uh, increase our energy intake and decrease our energy expenditure, we will overflow that bathtub, which represents our storage capacity. So if we have the tap on too much with energy intake and the outlet is not letting enough fat out with energy expenditure, we're, we can exceed our ability to store fat subcutaneously. And that overflow gets the bathroom carpet wet, the soggy bathroom carpet. I love this metaphor. You know, some individuals, uh, have limited capacity to store adipose tissue. And that's the South Asian phenotype in particular. 
you know, we see many individuals from India, Malaysia, all along that South Asia area uh, where, where they're, they don't have high BMIs, but they've got a lot of metabolic consequences. And it's simply because they do not have the capacity to store body fat subcutaneously. We all need a certain amount of body fat to be healthy. Normal body fat stores are subcutaneous and they're usually subcutaneous in the legs and the gluteofemoral region. If you biopsy this healthy body fat, you see small uh, adipocytes. Um, there's no uh, hyperplasia of the adipose tissue. There's no increased angiogenesis. Uh, there's no infiltration with inflammatory cells. However, when we exceed our ability to uh, fill our, our subcutaneous body fat stores, we start storing fat in bad places, in ectopic uh, adipose tissue stores, in liver, in muscle, in pancreas, epicardial adipose tissue within the abdomen, this abdominal adipose tissue. And that body fat is much less healthy. Uh, when you biopsy it, you see these large adipose um, adipocytes it's uh, infiltrated with inflammatory cells. They're crown-like uh, structures that indicate um, dead adipocytes. And this adipose tissue is hypoxic. There's a lot of apoptosis going on. It's under stress. And uh, it leads to um, the development of all of the obesity complications. So this is the lipotoxic effect of uh, these adipose tissue cells. Lots of adipokines and metabolites are atherogenic, they're pro-inflammatory, they're pro-thrombotic. And this is the metabolically unhealthy adipose tissue and that's shown on the right. When we look at Joseph, we can see that he's got NAFLD caused by infiltration of his liver with fat and that can lead to steatohepatitis and cirrhosis. He's also got dyslipidemia. He's got coronary heart disease. He may well have epic, increased epicardial adipose tissue. You know, this adipose tissue secretes angiotensinogen. It activates the renin-angiotensin system and leads to uh, systemic hypertension, which Joseph has. So Joseph really uh, represents that picture of excess abnormal body fat, that, that soggy bathroom carpet model that Steve O'Reilly so beautifully illustrated in such a memorable way. So our goals for him are to really achieve some significant weight loss because he has some very difficult complications of his obesity. And we need to do that while at the same time being cognizant of his blood pressure. So we need to do that if possible without negatively affecting his blood pressure. So how do we use our anti-obesity medications to help this patient? That's the question. Well, we know that if we can get more weight loss, we can get more health benefits. And the reason for that is illustrated beautifully in this study that was done by Sam Klein and colleagues. They reduced people to 5% and did all of these advanced clinical endpoint measurements then reduced them more to 11% repeated those measurements and then reduced them by 16% and repeated the measurements again. 
So there were improvements in all the cardiovascular risk factors and uh, ALT, the uh, abnormal liver function uh, that began at 5% and increased with increasing weight, weight loss. But it really took 11% weight loss to have a, an improvement in LDL, HDL, adiponectin, and free fatty acids. So more weight loss was needed. We needed to start at that 11% weight loss. And for C-reactive protein and many inflammatory markers, it took 16% weight loss. So as Dominica highlighted, these inflammatory uh, aspects of excess abnormal body fat need more weight loss. Now, one of the good things about this study is he did tissue-specific insulin sensitivity. And it's, the good news is that your, your adipose tissue insulin sensitivity and liver insulin sensitivity improved dramatically with just 5% weight loss. And you don't get much more benefit at 11 and 16% weight loss. I think that's why this prediabetes is so responsive to weight loss. But muscle insulin sensitivity and beta cell function do continue to improve with additional weight loss. So for more advanced diabetes and dysglycemia, we need more weight loss. And then he measured a number of, of things about adipose tissue biology, including the, the cholesterol um, flux downregulation of, uh, of, of those genes involved in cholesterol flux and and those involved in lipid synthesis in extracellular matrix remodeling and oxidative stress. And it took 11% weight loss and more to really have an impact on those. So different tissues respond differently to weight loss and that excess abnormal body fat is the first to go. And that is why we can get a lot of benefits without making everybody a BMI of 25 or less. So our key strategies when we're trying to, to help our patients with chronic diseases lose weight is to achieve the health benefits of weight loss. And then hopefully our anti-obesity medications can, can provide additional health benefits. Um, Dominica already showed you this, um, this slide and it illustrates so beautifully with the average weight losses in, in blue that uh, uh, with medications and the average weight losses with placebo in orange, when both groups are on the same lifestyle intervention, that medications produce more weight loss than, than lifestyle alone. The other take home messages is that all of our medications have different weight loss profiles. And as uh, Dominica brought out, there's a lot of variation around these averages. So some patients may respond very well to one of these drugs, other patients not so well. And in that case, when we, especially when we need to get more weight loss, we need to stop the medications that's not working so well and try one that is, that is associated with higher weight loss or that may work better in that particular patient. And we need to be cognizant of those side effects. Remember, Joseph, we're we are concerned about his blood pressure. And we know naltrexone and bupropion wouldn't be our first choice. You know, fentramine topiramate um, was not associated with increases in blood pressure in its studies, but 
the decrease in blood pressure associated with that weight loss was not as great as, as it could have been. So it's also not a preferable medicine for this patient, I believe. And this, Joseph has established cardiovascular disease. We are interested in reducing risk for subsequent cardiovascular disease outcomes. Well, we, we do have in the label of liraglutide an indication that this, this uh, molecule was associated with cardiovascular risk reduction in persons with type 2 diabetes. And there is some evidence for improvement, although it is not um, definitive uh, in a post-hoc analysis from, its, um, from the scale trials. But for our other two medicines, we do not have evidence from cardiovascular outcome trials that, that, that these medications are associated with no increased risk for cardiovascular outcomes and certainly not decreased risk. There is a study that's coming. The SELECT trial is underway with semaglutide 2.4 milligrams. And it is, uh, it's a, it is going to be a pivotal trial because what it does is it takes individuals who have established cardiovascular disease and it's powered for superiority. It's going to demonstrate whether or not semaglutide 2.4 milligrams reduces risk for subsequent cardiovascular events. And it's not in persons with type 2 diabetes. Nobody in this trial has diabetes. They all have obesity and a prior cardiovascular event. So if the, if this, the outcome of this trial is positive, it will make the standard of care for people like Joseph such that they should be receiving semaglutide 2.4 milligrams because it's associated with reduction in, in risk for subsequent cardiovascular events, a real pivotal study. Watch that space. <laughs> okay, coming back to our treatment plan for Joseph. Well, what we really want is we want to reduce his cardiovascular risk. We don't have a proven pathway to that yet. We wanna improve his blood pressure. We know that weight loss can do that. We wanna clear his liver fat and improve his triglycerides. Well, well it's possible for in lifestyle intervention to do this, but the odds are that we can't get enough weight loss to achieve all these goals. Adding a medication will help. With our older medications, we will need a more intensive lifestyle intervention. With our newer medications, semaglutide 2.4 milligrams, we know that our odds of achieving that 15% weight loss, which is our goal, are greater. Uh, we know that surgery is likely to achieve weight loss sufficient to achieve these goals uh, and to reduce mortality and cardiovascular risk. But he's really not ready to go there yet. We need to monitor Joseph during his weight loss attempts. We need to keep in mind that 15% goal. And if we're not achieving that, we need to intensify our therapy and perhaps even reintroduce uh, surgery. Just to reiterate about Joseph's blood pressure, naltrexone and bupropion would increase blood pressure. I don't think it would be our choice. And fentramine toparamate will reduce blood pressure less well than others. So it would be low on my list. Um, we know that where weight loss is, is good, we, that generally means more improvement in blood pressure. But you know, blood pressure and weight are not always tightly linked. So we need to treat him with antihypertensives if his blood pressure is high 
no matter what the weight loss picture is. Okay, here's our treatment plan. Again, this is joint decision-making. He needs to be part of, of the dialogue. Our part of the dialogue is to discuss the importance of being intensive in his weight loss approach, considering our goals for him really improving his long-term outcome. We need to uh, make that goal, weight loss goal, 15%, I believe. But it needs to be a joint decision. We have to consider his needs and his preferences. And we need to monitor him over the long-term. We need to adjust our therapy, keeping that goal in mind and doing what it takes to get there. So comments, Dominica? <laughs> All right, well, let me do a recap. That's um, actually a very common person that shows up in the clinic. I'd say that's very common for me. So I think, I think what you say is really important. We have to focus on optimizing these metabolic outcomes by helping them lose weight, but we have to recognize we wanna decrease the location of the fat, right? We wanna decrease visceral fat. So that location of where that fat is on that individual is really important. He is really in serious medical trouble, or at least peril, right, if we don't do something. So we have to take it seriously, our treatment, and we have to do a serious intervention. We want to look very careful at these medicines. I mean, I would agree that the newer medications and like semaglutide, where we can get 15% weight loss, we can get, at least there's a suggestion now that with GLP-1s, we get improvement of fatty liver, which is a huge risk for these patients. I've actually recently had two people now have uh, early cirrhosis that we identified. And it's scary because they are at risk for this. So losing 15% um, with the newer medications are really important. Trying to target medicines that are gonna improve his blood pressure, improve his liver, improve with weight loss that impacts other outcomes, I think is really critical. But also, again, to reiterate, you have to engage your patient with this. They have to understand why you guys are doing it. You have to agree with what your approach is and the management and go from there. Great, thank you. I'd like to spend just a minute on what, what might be beyond the horizon. You know, our topic was really about GLP-1 as a, as a pathway for, for better pharmacology for obesity. But you know, GLP-1 is, is one of the molecules in this glucagon superfamily. Uh, so there's interest in all of these molecules, in GIP, in glucagon, and in GLP-1, because they have effects that are overlapping and that make them uh, attractive agents uh, for development of pharmacologic approaches for weight management. Um, and in addition, I think the other uh, gut hormones, including amylin, are receiving a lot of attention. So the way that uh, most of the development is, is happening here is looking at what's called single molecule, dual or triple agonist approaches. So we would take GLP-1 and glucagon and peptides from both, I mean, amino acids from both of those peptides and merge them together in a single molecule to hit both receptors. Similarly, GLP-1 and GIP and we have a drug in phase three on that, and GLP-1, GIP, glucagon together as a triagonist in a single molecule. 
So watch this space. There's going to be a lot of drug development in this area, along with using other uh, compounds in combination. And these compounds are being derived from our understanding of that gut-brain axis and regulation of food intake. So to illustrate that, there are two medications that are coming. Terzepatide is in phase three, and we expect it to be reviewed by the FDA for an indication in both uh, diabetes and in obesity. The 15 milligram dose of terzepatide would be the target for obesity. And we expect that to have similar, if not greater weight loss than semaglutide 2.4 milligrams. And then I've showed you another uh, combination, com combination of cogrelantide along with semaglutide. This is earlier in the pipeline. Cogrelantide is a long acting amylin uh, uh, compound. And when it's combined with semaglutide in, in the early studies of this, the weight loss would be expected to be about 24%. So we are making a lot of progress based on our understanding of this regulation of food intake. And I think we're sort of filling this gap between intensive lifestyle intervention efficacy and bariatric surgery efficacy. So that's very exciting. Watch this space. There are many good things coming. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash WBN 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Novo Nordisk Incorporated.